I want to say a big thank you to uh, the pastors that taught over the last couple of weeks while I was out of pocket. So can we give a big thank you to Charles and Josh and Glenn for uh, teaching us uh, God's Word so well. All right, let's do what we do. Get your Bible out. Open it up uh, to the book of 1 Samuel is where we're going to be uh, for this new series that we're launching called Back on Track. We're going to be looking at the life of Samuel, this incredible prophet that has a timely word uh, for you and for me right here and uh, right now. There is a, there is a rule uh, in aviation that most pilots understand with regard to uh, direction and navigation. Okay, this rule is called the 60 to 1 rule. The 61 rule says that if you are off your directional heading by just one degree, that for every 60 miles you travel, you will drift one mile away from your intended destination. 60 to 1. So if you're just going a short distance, that's not really that big of a deal. If I'm flying from Fort Lauderdale to Tampa and, and I'm off just one degree from my directional heading, I, I may be two or three miles off from where I intended to be, but I can course correct and I can get back to the, to the airport and I can, I can land the plane. But if I'm flying from Fort Lauderdale to Honolulu, right, and I'm off just one degree, then actually I would miss the island by 81 miles, all right? I'm looking for a runway out in the middle of the Pacific Ocean, all right? That's a problem. And I think that is a good uh, apt illustration for what was happening to the nation of Israel at the time that we study of 1 Samuel. That the, the nation of Israel had gone astray. They had drifted off course. There was a time when they were walking with God, when they saw God deliver them from bondage, when they saw God defeat their enemies. They, they saw God moving in a powerful way. But when you read in Judges, it says there was a new generation that came up that did not know the Lord. And because this new generation had not seen God move in a powerful way, that they began to drift off course. And by the time we get to where Samuel, the time that Samuel lived, uh, the, the nation was off the rails. The nation had drifted far, far from God. It was, a, it was a really a time of transition and turbulence. It was a time of transition in that the nation was going through a transition, a very significant transition in the life of the nation of Israel. And that is they were moving from a, from a, a theocracy where God is leading his people and God would use what he called judges. These were men and women that would step up and give leadership at a certain point in time. God was though leading the nation, a theocracy ruled by judges to a transition of a, of a dynastic monarchy where there would be now a king and his successors would be his sons. That was a huge shift. In fact, in that shift was really the heart of the people saying, we don't want God to rule us anymore. We want a king to rule over us because all the other nations have a king to rule over them. And we want a king like every other nation. It was really a rejection against the Lord. And that's why I say it was transition and turbulence because underneath it all was this turbulent resistance to God. In fact, you're going to find later on that God will tell Samuel, listen, Samuel, they're not rejecting you, they're rejecting me. The problem is not you. The problem is that they don't want me to rule them in fact, we find the very last words of the book of Judges says this 
In those days, there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what seemed right to him. What, what a scary place to be, right? When everyone does what's right in their eyes. It was a time of turbulence politically, a time of turbulence socially, a time of turbulence morally, a time of turbulence spiritually. Not much unlike what we're facing today. And yet, in the midst of all that comes a prophet named Samuel. Samuel was God's man in, in God's time. He was a very unique uh, man with a unique assignment in that it was Samuel who is the last judge. He kind of closes off the season of the judges, and he is the first prophet. And his role was to anoint two kings of Israel. And so he does that. But not only does he anoint King Saul and later King David, but Samuel is the voice that calls out for people to return to the Lord. Samuel is the one that is crying out for people to get back on track with God. He's the one to call them to course correct, right? And to come back to where they used to be. You know, we all need course corrections, don't we? Uh, sometimes we go through seasons of life and we just need to get, get back on track. Uh, we're trying to get back into school, right? Uh, here in just a couple of weeks. We're trying to get back to the way that things used to be and back to some sense of normality. And maybe over the last year, year and a half, you've said, you know what, I've, I've just kind of drifted. I, I've drifted in our, my marriage. I've drifted in, in my uh, friendships. I've drifted in, in just kind of what's important to me. I've drifted in a lot of different areas. I've drifted spiritually. And I'm not really sure how to, how to revive this this walk with God that I used to have, well, what we're going to learn is Samuel's going to teach us how to get back on track with God. All right? So let's look at it. First uh, Samuel uh, chapter 1 is where the story begins. This is the word of God. There was a man from Ramathium, Zophim, in the hill country of Ephraim. His name was Elkanah, son of Jeroham the son of Eliam, the son of Tehu, the son of Zuf, uh, the Ephraimite. And he had two wives, the first named Hannah and the second uh, Penina. And Penina had children, but Hannah was childless. This man would go up from his town every year to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of armies at Shiloh, where Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, were the Lord's priests. And whenever Elkanah offered a sacrifice, he always gave portions of the meat to his wife, Penina, and to each of her sons and daughters. But he gave a double portion to Hannah, for he loved her, even though the Lord had kept her from conceiving. And her rival would taunt her severely just to provoke her, because the Lord had kept Hannah from conceiving year after year, she went up to the Lord's house. Her rival taunted her in this way, and Hannah would weep and would not eat. Hannah, why are you crying? Her husband Elkanah would ask. Why won't you eat? Why are you troubled? Am I not better to you than ten sons? Now stop right there for just a minute. The story of Samuel really begins with his own parents. Uh, 
and with this man named Elkanah. Now you may say, well, who is Elkanah? And my response to you would be nobody special, right? Elkanah just wasn't anybody special. He, he wasn't an important figure in the Bible. In fact, this is about the only place that he shows up. Uh, he kind of appears and then disappears. In fact, we're given here four generations and none of them are really men of significance or men of importance. They're not even from an important town. Uh, Ramah will be a place that you'll see throughout the Samuel's life, but it was not necessarily an important town. Now, what we do learn about Elkanah is in 1 Chronicles uh, chapter 6, we find that Elkanah was actually a priest, all right? He was of the Levitical line. He was of the line of Aaron, and yet he's not serving in that capacity. In fact, he's not even living in one of the Levitical towns or, or cities reserved for the priest to live. And so that gives us some indication that Elkanah may not even be that godly a man. In fact, you don't have to read very far to get an approval of that because you get to verse 2 and it says that he had two wives. And right there, he's, that kind of shows you he's not, not really a godly man walking with God at the time. And I tell you what, I think he's just somebody looking for trouble, right? I mean, to have two wives, man, wow, how do you keep them happy? And so here he is, he has two wives. His first wife's name was Hannah, which means grace. It's a wonderful, beautiful name. And his second wife was named Panina, which means ruby or red. Now, it wasn't uncommon in, in those days if you had a wife and she was barren, she was not able to produce a child, that uh, a man might take on a second wife in order to produce an heir to preserve the family line or the family name. And I just want to go on record in saying here that that was never something that God commanded, nor was it something that God endorsed. But it was practiced in the pagan world and was many times taken over by even some of God's people. Um, you know, Elkanah, every time you see this happen, by the way, you see this in Abraham, you see it in other places in the Bible. Every time you see this happen, what you see follow is conflict and confusion every time. And if you don't think that's true, then just ask Elkanah because he got a whole lot of that in his house. You know, when he took on his second wife, she apparently had multiple children now. She not only had sons, he not only had sons, she had daughters as well. And, and so, yeah, he got what he wanted. He wanted children, but he also got something he didn't want, and that was this divided home and this chaotic home. And that's exactly what happened here. And so Elkanah would take his family to Shiloh. Shiloh was the place where the tabernacle resided in this time. The Ark of the Covenant was in the tabernacle. It was the place of worship, this place called Shiloh. And so the nation would go there to worship God. And so Elkanah would take his family there once a year. You know, I mean, it's not that impressive that he would go once a year. Everyone was required to go at least once a year. And so he went once a year and he would offer a sacrifice. And then when he would offer those sacrifices, he would get meat to take home. These were festal sacrifices where you would take meat home and you would all eat it together. And so he would give portion to Panina and to her children, but he also gave a double portion to Hannah. And the reason why is because he said he loved her. She was his wife, his first wife. I mean, he loved Hannah. He didn't marry her necessarily have children. He married her because he loved her, and he still had a tender place in his heart for her, but he had really no idea as to how even this doling out of different portions would just continually stir up resentment 
between both of these women. You know, several years ago, there was a TV show called Desperate Housewives. And uh, I think that's a, a, that's a, a good title for this passage uh, because that's what's happening right here. Panina was desperate for her husband's love. Hannah was desperate to have a son. And because both of these women were desperate, they just went at each other. And so Panina would constantly poke and pride on Hannah. What's wrong with you? Why won't the Lord give you a son? Look at how God's blessed me. And he hasn't blessed you. And she was trying to posture herself up in the, in the mind and the heart of her husband. And so she would push Hannah down. And, and I'm sure at some point, Hannah began to ask herself those own questions. You know, what, what is wrong with me? And why has God done this to me? And after all, I've tried to be a good wife. And I've tried to do the right thing. And I've tried to worship God and yet God has allowed these terrible things to happen to me and why doesn't God just give me a son those are really important questions and her husband didn't really fully understand the depth of her pain I mean he would come El Elkanah and he would say well honey well, what's wrong I mean how many times guys have you done that right what's wrong and we were clueless we really don't know ladies we really don't know all right? You're like, you've got to be kidding me. You don't know? I, we really, blank up here. We really don't get it. All right? And he's like, what's wrong? Duh. What do you think is wrong? Uh, why are you not eating? Why are you so sad? And then he, I love this. Then he goes, am I not worth more than 10 sons to you? He doesn't even understand. It's not his worth that's in question. It's her worth that's in question. The better thing for him to say is, are you not worth more to me than 10 sons? See, that would have been the right thing. Make a note of that, guys. All right? Uh, are you not worth more to me than 10 sons? But he, even he doesn't get it. So Hannah was in a very, very desperate situation. Listen, you may be in a desperate situation today. You may, you may have asked the same question of Hannah. God, why haven't you given me children? We have families in our church that are struggling and, and, and torn up inside because they want a child so bad. They would be such great parents, right? We would be such great parents and we want a child so bad and yet we cannot have a child and then we see, you know, some person over here and they get rid of their kid and, 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 and they don't seem to want their child and we would die for one and and God why have you not given us a son or a daughter God why you know Liz and I went through that early in our uh, life we went through a period of infertility and we understand the depth and the pressure and the strain that all that can bring and the insecurities that come with it you may be feeling that you may be feeling desperate because God has not given you a husband and you desperately want a husband, a godly man to love you and to lead you well. Or God hasn't given you a wife and you desperately don't want to be alone and you want to have a godly wife and you don't know why God hasn't provided a wife for you. Or maybe you're desperate in your marriage because it's not so good or you're desperate financially because things aren't working out the way you hoped that business was going to work out. Or maybe you're, you're desperately unhappy and you don't know why you're unhappy but you're in this desperate situation and in, in your private moment, you you say, God, why have you allowed this to happen to me? God, if you're good, God, if you hear me, God, why do you not hear and answer this little request that I have? If you've ever been in that place, then you understand the desperation of Hannah. And if you're in that place today, and maybe you're watching online and you're in that place today, then I want you to keep listening. 
keep listening to what God is going to do in Hannah's life. So let's keep reading the story. Look at verse, verse 9. On one occasion, Hannah got up after they ate and drank at Shiloh. The priest Eli was sitting on a chair by the doorpost of the Lord's temple. Deeply hurt, Hannah prayed to the Lord and wept with many tears. Making a vow, she pleaded, Lord of armies, if you will take notice of your servant's affliction, remember and not forget me and give me your your give your servant a son I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and his hair his hair will never be cut and while she was continued praying in the Lord's presence Eli watched her mouth Hannah was praying silently though her lips were moving her voice could not be heard and Eli thought that she was drunk and he said to her how how long are you going to be drunk Uh, get rid of your wine No, my Lord, Hannah replied, I am a woman with a broken heart. I haven't had any wine or beer. I've been pouring out my heart before the Lord. Don't think of me as a wicked woman. I've been praying from the depth of my anguish and resentment. Stop right there. Um, You know, here is Hannah and she goes to the temple, to the tabernacle. She is desperate. She doesn't know where to turn. Her husband doesn't get it. She certainly is not going to get any sympathy at home. And she can't stay in this place with Padina and all of her children. They're just, it's just always in her face every day how insignificant she is. And so she finally goes to a place where she can just cry out to God. And she begins to cry out to God in a prayer, in a very desperate prayer. In many ways, Hannah's prayer uh, aligns with the Lord's prayer. And and Hannah's prayer becomes a model prayer for us, just as Jesus gave us the Lord's prayer as a model prayer for us to follow. And I believe it is the prayer that God hears. The title of the message today is The Prayer That God Hears. And I believe that if following this model, that we find a, a pattern of a prayer that God hears, especially we're in desperate situations. So what is that? Well, first off, you're taking notes, jot this down. Uh, worship God for who he is. If I'm going to pray, I start off by worshiping God uh, for who he is. He, she begins uh, in verse 11 uh, by crying out. She says, Lord of armies, if you've taken notice of your servant's affliction, remember and not forgive me. She calls him the Lord of armies. Uh, Some versions say uh, Almighty or Lord God Almighty uh, or the Lord of hosts, some versions say. I'm not sure which version you're using. Uh, It was a military term. And by the way, this is the first time we find in the Bible where this word is actually used. The first time, the Lord of armies, the Lord of hosts, the Lord Almighty. It could mean the Lord of all the angelic hosts. It could mean the Lord of all the planetary hosts, of all creation. But I think it was most likely a reference to a military term, the God of all power, the God of all strength. Hannah certainly knew who she was talking to. If you flip over, and we're not going to take the time to do that, but if you flip over to chapter 2, you get another prayer of Hannah, and she begins by worshiping God, and she recognizes this God as the Lord of Israel who, who defeated their enemies and saved them from bondage, and is, no one is more powerful than him. And so she starts off and she says, Oh Lord, you are mighty, you are powerful, you are good. 
This is the same uh, name for God that David, King David used in Psalm 46, verse 7. He calls him the Lord of armies is with us. And so she cries out to the God of all power. She worships him. You know, Jesus said when you're to pray, you're to start off and pray, Our Father, who art in heaven, what? Hallowed or holy is your name. In other words, we're to pray with this sense of worship. God, I recognize who you are and I recognize what you've done. Listen, the prayer that God hears begins in worship. Now, some people say, well, Craig, why is that? I mean, why does God need us to worship him? I mean, uh, after all, I mean, doesn't he have angels doing that? Why do, why do I have to worship him? Does God need that before he can hear my prayer? No, God doesn't need worship. You do, right? Because worship adjusts and realigns your perspective. Usually when we are desperate in desperate situations and de desperate circumstances, our problems are huge. And God seems so small. Our problems are so great. And God seems so inept and small compared to them. But when we worship God, when we see him for who he is, when we stand in his presence, when we read of his, out of his word, of his might and his power and his greatness and his strength, then all of a sudden the, the script gets flipped, right? And all of a sudden we see God for who he is. And then we understand that our problems are dwarfed in comparison to his greatness. And so that's why we worship. Not because God needs it, it's because we need it. Not because God needs a perspective shift, we need the perspective change. And so she starts off in worshiping the Lord. All right, and then secondly, jot, jot this down. Number one, worship God for who he is. Number two, uh, pour out your pain. Hannah pours out her pain uh, to the Lord. She's honest with God. The words to describe Hannah as she's praying are distressed, deeply hurt, uh, many tears, broken heart, anguish, resentment. Have you been there? God, why? God, why? God, I'm brokenhearted. God, I don't understand. God, I'm confused. God, if you're so great and you're so powerful, then why won't you answer my prayers? That's honesty. And that's really what, what Hannah was praying uh, most of you have been watching the Olympics like I have over the last week or so and, and uh, just enjoying that. You've probably heard quite a bit about Simone Biles, the uh, gymnast who stepped away from uh, her sport uh, in the Olympics simply because of uh, what she called um, mental health, her own mental health. We've not really heard exactly all that is involved with that. She has opened up to some about the pressure and the stress and anxiety that she's been experiencing. Michael Phelps, uh, the great uh, decorated swimmer, uh, went on record to support uh, Simone and, and talked of his own experience of uh, after the 2012 uh, Olympics, him seriously falling into depression and considering suicide. But let me tell you something. Uh, depression, anxiety, worry, stress are not just things that are reserved for high-level athletes. They're things that we all deal with. And there are times in life when life becomes overwhelming and life becomes 
a huge burden that you don't know if you can carry. And what do you do when that happens? When you come to that place where you're overwhelmed with life, suffocated by your own inner torment. Psalm 55, 22 says, cast your burdens on the Lord and he will sustain you. Cast your burdens. First Peter said, cast your cares on him because he cares for you. I love that. This idea of casting, rolling my burden, rolling my concern onto the Lord. And then what I love what Jesus said in John 6 is when you cast your cares on him, he says this, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. All right? So if you cast your cares, he's not going to cast you out. That's a good place for an amen. All right? If I'm casting my cares, then God's not going to cast you out. In fact, if, in fact, the Lord draws near to those who are burdened like, like Hannah. In Psalm uh, 34, verse 8, it says, The Lord is near to the brokenhearted, and he saves those who are crushed in spirit. Thomas Goodwin was a Puritan pastor and theologian, and he wrote extensively. And, and here's a statement that he made. I want to put up on the screen here. This is what he said. Let's go ahead and put that next slide up. Christ's own joy, comfort, and happiness and glory are increased and enlarged by... Now, I want you to think about it a minute. How would you finish that sentence? Christ's joy and happiness is increased by what? In you. Well, some of you might say, well, he, his, Christ's joy and happiness is increased when I'm obedient, right? Christ's joy and happiness is increased when I, when I make good choices. Christ's joy and happiness is, is increased when I worship him. And, and by the way, all those things would be true. But the way Goodwin finished that sentence was very different. Look at how he wrote it. He said this. Christ's own joy, comfort, and happiness and glory are increased and enlarged by his showing grace and mercy in pardoning relieving and comforting his members here on earth. In other words, what he said is this, that Jesus gets more joy of showing you grace than you get in receiving it. Does that change the way you see Jesus? That Jesus gets more delight and joy and glory in showing you kindness and goodness than even when we, own, we receive it ourselves. And so here is Hannah. She's just pouring out her heart to the Lord. It's raw. It's real. It's honest. Her frustrations are boiling over. And she's just pouring it out to God. And then here's a third thing to this element of a prayer that God hears. Not only do we start with worship, not only do we pour out our pain to the Lord, but then we thirdly ask God for help. Here is Hannah, and she said, Oh Lord, God, remember me, and don't forget me. She asked God to help us. This is exactly what Jesus told us to do in his model prayer when he said, give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us of our debts as we forgive our debtors. Lead us not into temptation. Deliver us from evil. Give us, forgive us, lead us. He said, Lord, we need help. And so here's when we're praying that we're to, we're to cry out to God for our specific need. Not just God to help us, God bless us in general, but God specifically meet our specific needs. And why does Jesus tell us to do that? Because we have a Father that longs to meet our deepest needs. We have a good Father who longs to give good gifts uh, to his, his children. And you say, well, why would God do that for me? I mean, I'm nobody special. 
<laughs> Why would God even hear me? There's nothing great about me. I'm just, I'm just a nobody that grew up in a nobody town, just like Elkanah. There's nothing fam famous about me. Why would God even hear me? You know, it's interesting. Job asked the same question. In Job 7, 17, he said, What is mankind that you make so much of them that you give them so much attention? That's such a great question. Why would you even be concerned about us, God? And the simple answer is because he loves you. And for some of you, you need to hear that again. That God loves you. That God has a purpose for you. That God has a plan for you. That he has not forgotten you. That he has not pushed you to the side. That God is at work in deeper ways than you can possibly understand. And that as you cry out to him that he actually hears you. Listen, Hannah had no idea that in asking God for a son, that was just her personal need. That God would be in answering that need, would be answering the need of a nation. That we need a prophet to point them back to the Lord. What is a prayer that God hears? It starts in worship. It, it it begins with pouring out your heart and your pain to the Lord. It, it moves to, to asking God for help. And then let me give you one more thing, and that is an important one, to surrender yourself to God. Hannah said, Lord, if you give me a son, I'll give him back to you. He'll serve you all the days of his life. I'll never cut his hair. You say, well, what's the deal with that? You know, bald guys, we like that, you know, but, but never cut his hair. What are you talking about? You know, why, what's this deal with long hair? She wants him to have long hair? What is, he, what is that? No, she's referring to a Nazarite vow. A Nazarite vow would allow your hair to grow, and this was a sign of your full devotion to God. Samson had a Nazarite vow. That's why he did not cut his hair. And, and so this idea is a Nazarite vow was usually for a period of time, and then you would break that vow by shaving your head and then starting over again. And this was a sign of great devotion to God. And she said, God, I will never cut his hair. In other words, I will, he will be devoted to you his whole life. Listen, what I want you to understand is that Hannah is not bargaining with God. God, if you do this, I'll do that. God, if, if you get me out of this, then I'll do this for you forever. She's not bargaining with God. She's surrendering to God. She said, God, if you give me a son, then I will surrender him completely back to you. She is releasing the very thing that she wants the most. Her most treasured possession, her most treasured gift, she said, I will give it in return back to you. That's what Hannah was saying. Hannah was surrendering. It's the same thing the Lord did when he said, uh, prayed, you know, not uh, let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Lord, we want your will to be done here. It's the same thing he prayed in the, in the Garden of Gethsemane. Father, not my will, but your will be done. It's to surrender. Listen, are you willing to surrender yourself completely to the Lord? Are you willing to give him that very thing that matters the most to you? Maybe it's your child. Maybe it's your job. Maybe it's your identity. Maybe it's a relationship and you know it's not right and, and yet you persist in it. I tell you what, there are a lot of folks that they want God to meet their need but they're unwilling to surrender to him. But Hannah was willing. Hannah said, Lord, whatever I have, whatever you place in my hands, God, I will surrender gladly to you. Here's the prayer that God heard. She began in worship. She poured out her pain. She asked God for help. 
and she surrendered completely to him. Listen, getting back on track with God really begins with desperate prayer. Getting back on track really begins with you pouring out your heart to God in prayer and saying, God, I'm far from you. God, I've drifted from you. God, I'm not where I wanna be. I'm a person I don't wanna be, God, and I need you. I need you to renew my heart again. If you continue, we're out of time. If you continue to read through the story, what you'll find is that Eli said, uh, all right, well, may the God uh, of Israel bless you and give you your heart's desire. And Hannah went away. And it says that as she went away, she went away joyful. She went away, she worshiped God. She went away and she ate. She went away and her countenance changed. Why? Because she chose to trust God. I think for many of you, every person here carries a burden. You know that? You know, one pastor told me many years ago, he said, Craig, there's a broken heart on every pew. That's true. Every one of us go through seasons of desperation. They're all different kinds in different ways. But we have to come to a place that we're willing to bring those desperate needs to a loving God and, and to cry out to him like this. And as we do cry out to him, we need to trust him that he will hear us and he will respond to us. I want you to bow your heads with me for just a minute. Maybe you're here today and you do carry a burden. You're asking those same questions. God, why have you let this happen? God, why have you not answered my prayer? God, why is it still continuing? God, will this ever end? God, why won't you do a miracle? God, why won't you heal? God, why won't you restore? God, why won't you provide this for me? My friend, let me just encourage you not to pull away from the Lord, but do what Hannah did. Run to him. Pour your heart out to him. Ask him to help, knowing that he is a loving father that cares for you. And then trust him that he's at work. Even in the painful times, even in the confusing times, even in the hard times, that God is at work in your life to bring about His glory and your good. And maybe you're here today and you don't know Christ. You've never given your life to Jesus. Then today could be the day that you say, Lord, my, my desperation is driving me to you. I need you. I need I need forgiveness. I need to start over. I need to know you. See, the good news is when we were far from God, when we were alienated from him, when we were running from him, that God pursued us in the person of Jesus. And that Jesus died on a cross and he bore our sin in our place. And he was buried. He rose again the third day and he offers new life to all who will turn to him in saving faith. And maybe today is the day that you turn to him in saving faith. Maybe today you can just right where you are, just say, God, I know I've sinned against you. God, I believe that Jesus died for me and rose again. Lord, I'm asking you, please forgive me. Come into my life. Make me a new person. You can pray that right where you are right now. And he will hear and he'll respond. Father, I thank you for your goodness. Lord, thank you for your kindness to us. Lord, thank you that even in the desperate seasons of our life, that you are a loving Father that hears us. Just like you heard Hannah, Lord, you will hear us. 
And just as Hannah was insignificant, nobody special from a nowhere place, Lord, you hear us as insignificant as we are, that you care about us. And Lord, I pray that, that in our desperation, that God, we would not push you away, we'd be run to you. And we pour out our heart to you, God, and you would draw us to yourself. Lord, we love you. Lord, we need you. Lord, we thank you for the gospel and we thank you for the hope that we have in Jesus. And we pray this in Christ's name. And all God's people said,